as we start, it's going to be most helpful if we, uh, if we pray. So if you join with me. Father, we thank you that we can meet together this morning uh, to consider your word. We ask now that as your Holy Spirit guided Paul as he wrote to Timothy, so too your Holy Spirit would guide us as we read it, as we listen to it, and as we have it shape our own lives. Amen. Well, I was talking to a work colleague the other day. I was um, contemplating coming in on the weekend to do some extra work. I thought I had to catch up. And this uh, work colleague, uh, trying to be a good friend, said, you know, no one on their deathbed ever wished they spent more time at work. No one on their deathbed ever wished they spent more time at work. Now, I've heard that before. Have you heard that before? Um, now, as I thought about it this time, now, I, I, I actually wondered whether it was true or not. I mean, I hadn't been on my deathbed. I, I didn't know, and neither did this person, as far as I could tell. They were still living. Um, so, it, but it did make me wonder, what, what do people uh, wish they'd done more of or less of on their deathbed? What were their great regrets as they lay there? Um, so, of course, I went to the internet to find out what the answer to that was. has the answer for everything these days. And there I found a lady called Bronnie Ware. Now, Bronnie Ware has spent years looking after patients who are in the last years of their lives. And, and on her site, she lists the five most common regrets that these people have shared with her. And these are the five things that these people told her. Firstly, I wish I'd lived a life true to myself, not the life that other people expected of me. Interesting. Second was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. So I guess it is true. Um, the interesting thing I thought about that was that this one was reportedly said by every single one of her male patients. So blokes out there, you might want to think about that. Um, the third one was, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. The fourth was, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And the fifth one that she listed on her site was, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Now, this is just uh, one, women, one woman's experience, isn't it? It's, but it's a fairly intriguing list. And you can almost hear the, the pain and regret coming through these five things that they listed. You can almost hear the words, if only I'd known this years before, I would have made such different choices about my life, such different choices about what I might do. And it seems that as our life draws to an end, we, we have this ability to realise, often with crystal clarity, what truly matters, what truly matters. And that's why final words such as these are interesting for those of us who still have lives to live. You see, I think last words are worth listening to. And today, when we get to, uh, to Timothy, what we have here is effectively Paul's last words. Uh, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that we know of. Uh, and it's not that the rest of chapter 4 is insignificant, because we're going to look at that next week. But really, the rest of chapter 4 is a list of farewells. It is these eight verses we're going to look at this morning that are Paul's final reflections on ministry. They detail his experience, uh, his wisdom, his advice, and his regrets. And they tell us what he realises at the end of his life, what is important, what life for a Christian should be all about and he wants to tell Timothy and he wants to tell us here this morning what to use our gifts for what to watch out for and what to live for these are Paul's deathbed words and they're worth listening to so let's get into them let's get into them uh, we can see as we start chapter 4 how serious these words are by the way that Paul starts off this final chapter it's not that he's just sending off an SMS or just distractedly jotting down some things on paper, putting something up on Facebook. No, no, no. 
These are really serious. He is reaching out of the letter here in chapter 2, in chapter 4. He's reaching out, grabbing Timothy by the collar and saying, hey, listen to this. This is really, really, really important what I'm about to say. Because he tells Timothy that he's writing these words in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. The same Christ who will judge all of humanity. The same Jesus whose kingdom has already begun and who will come again. And it's in the presence of this God and this Jesus that Paul gives Timothy a charge, a serious responsibility. Look with me at verse, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. It's pretty serious stuff. And at this stage, we're kind of on the edge of our seats. What is it that's so important? It has to be deeply complex. It has to be really profound. It has to have lots of theological words, doesn't it? Well, it turns out that it is profound, but it's not complex at all. It's, it's actually very, very simple. It's only three words. One simple task, three words. But it is going to reveal what the most important thing that Paul wants Timothy to do as Paul departs this world. And this key task for Timothy is that he should preach the word. Preach the word. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, I think the risk with this phrase, preach the word, is that we just let it pass right over us because it seems such a familiar uh, Christian-type phrase that we're not going to spend any time thinking about it. But given the seriousness of these words, how serious Paul writes these words, I think it's very important that we do think about them, think about what they mean. So firstly, there's a verb here, the word preach. Now, preach is a type of speech, isn't it? But what, what, what comes to mind when you think the word preach? Uh, is it uh, a casual conversation, a bit of banter back and forth? Is it a, is it a, is it a mumble, a shy, apologetic mumble? Um, is it an apologetic, I'm sorry, in, interruption? It's not that, is it? Is it preach is a, is, is a confident, confident, putting out there type of speech, isn't it? When you think of preachers, you think of people who want to convince you of an idea, who want to persuade you of what they're about to say. Preaching is a speech that explains, that persuades, that convinces. And so, yes, Timothy is to speak, but he's to do much more than that. He's to preach. He is to persuade. He's to proclaim. And what is it that he is to preach? Well, he's to preach the word. What is this word? Well, if we look back through 2 Timothy, we think back through what we've done the last few weeks, we can see that it's the gospel. It's the word of truth that we see back in chapter 2, verse 15. It's the, it's the trustworthy message that Paul has been leaving with Timothy throughout this, this book. And it is the truth found in the God-breathed scriptures that we looked at last week in chapter 3. And if we think uh, back to John's gospel that Jess read for, read for us, we understand that John also uh, explains to us that the word is also another name for Jesus. That in Jesus, God has his final word, his ultimate word. It's the word of salvation to all mankind is found in Jesus Christ. And so really, what Timothy is to preach is Jesus and the truth about Jesus and the good news about Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus. This, then, is the solemn charge that Paul leaves for Timothy. Preach the word, Timothy. Proclaim Jesus. Now, because uh, this is a solemn charge, I think he also wants to give a bit more detail about it. He's not going to just leave him with three words. And what we see after that is Paul doesn't just tell 
uh, Timothy what to preach, he also tells him when to preach, why to preach, and how to preach. First, he says that Timothy is to preach at every single opportunity, all the time. He's to do it in season and out of season. There's no other time between in season and out of season. It covers everything, doesn't it? So all the time, Timothy is to be prepared to preach about Jesus. Second, uh, Paul then describes why he is to to preach. He is to preach in order to uh, correct misunderstandings about the truth and about Jesus. He's to rebuke those people who don't get those corrections, who continue to misunderstand the truth. And finally, he's also to encourage all those he preaches to, to follow Jesus, follow this Jesus that he proclaims with the good news that comes with that. So why is Timothy to preach? He's to preach to correct, uh, to rebuke, and to encourage. And finally, Paul tells Timothy how to preach the word. He's to do it with great patience and with careful instruction. Uh, Paul Paul knows that people will be slow to listen and are going to need to have the truth of God very carefully explained to them. And to ensure that Timothy's preaching is done with maximum impact, that he gets the message through, he needs to do it carefully and patiently. It's too important a role to do anything else with. And so here in verse 2 is Paul's solemn charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Preach the word. You might wonder, as I do, why is this? Why are these three words the most important thing that Paul can give Timothy at this stage, these final days of his life? Well, I think Paul gives Timothy these words because he knows what people are like. He knows that people, including apparently faithful Christian people, are not going to listen. They're not going to put up with truth, with sound doctrine. Instead, Paul knows that people are going to wander off away from the truth, chasing teachings that seem to be more attractive, that make them happy, that that sound better. And he uses a great illustration in his passage here. He describes people as having itching ears. Rather than the truth, they're going to look for things that scratch their own personal itches. Now, you, you know what it's like when you have one of those incredibly frustrating itches that you just need to get to? Uh, you, you can end up doing some very strange things. I've seen people try and scratch through arm casts when they've got a break, you know, because they can scratch underneath. You can see them twisting into all sorts of different angles just to reach that one point that they just really need to scratch. I've got a guy in my office who has come into this habit in the, in the time that I've been there of standing at my door and just sort of rubbing himself against my door frame as he talks to me. I, I really need to buy this guy a back, back scratcher. Um, but he stands there and that's what he does. He gets that itch that way. Well, Paul recognises that uh, it's not just physical itches that we, uh, as, as people, need to scratch, but it's also spiritual ones too. And we can see it all around us. We can see people looking for meaning in the world, looking for words that make them feel better about themselves, that sound better to them, that reassure them that everything's going to be okay. And these spiritual itches make people do strange things as well. People will search uh, high and low to find that particular teacher, that particular person, who's going to help them feel good about themselves, to justify ourselves, make us hear what we want to hear. People look for words that are what they want to hear rather than hearing the words that they actually need to hear. 
But, but the problem with this, as Paul points out, is when people turn away from the truth, they turn to myths. Uh, and myths aren't just harmless. They're not just you know, harmless fables and stories. They're actually, if they're not the truth, they're actually lies. And so Paul's saying, turning from the truth means turning to lies. It's not just choosing a different road up the same mountain. It's choosing a totally different road, which is taking you away from God and away from the truth. When people chase their own desires and look for words to soothe their itching ears, they leave the truth. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. You remember he said, Timothy preached the word. This is the reason why. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And I think uh, church history is full of examples of people who've decided that the truth is not what they want. And sometimes this turn is quite obvious. There's new, totally new sects or beliefs or whole movements set up and the Christian message is clearly discarded, thrown out the back as they walk out the door. But often the shift is far more subtle as the truth is quietly and just subtly moulded to scratch itchy ears. Um, too many Christians, you might know some of them, have followed teachers who've told them that we're actually good people, that hell is not real, uh, that good works is all you need, that God is so loving and so caring and so forgiving that we don't need to change. We don't need to say sorry to him for letting him down. That God really doesn't think your sin is all that important, you know. Well, these words might make you feel good. They might make you feel happy. But they're actually myths and they're actually lies. And the great irony, I think, is that our ultimate itch, that of salvation, of forgiveness, of being made right with the God who created us, being put back into a right relationship with him, can only be scratched, can only be scratched by God's truth. We may want to hear certain things to reassure ourselves that we are all right, but actually we need to hear God's truth that makes us right. And Paul knows that, and that's why he's sharing that with Timothy. And it's because of this challenge of itchy-eared listeners that Paul gives uh, Timothy four final instructions in verse 5 as well, four, four final things he needs to do. He's to preach the word, and in the face of opposition, he's to keep his head and stay calm. He's not allowed to lose his head, not allowed to lose his cool. Uh, in the face of opposition and indifference, he's to endure suffering, he's to endure hardship. He needs to keep at his job of telling people about Jesus. He's to do the work of an evangelist. And finally, in spite of the temptation to give up that we've heard earlier in this letter in, in 2 Timothy, Timothy is to continue in the work that he's to do. He's to take the job all the way to the end. He's to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, finish the job. Look with me at verse 5. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul is crystal clear about what Timothy is to do. His deathbed clarity allows him to see what is important and to share that with Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word. Well, finally, in the last three verses in our passage today, Paul turns to himself. And Paul knows that his life is nearly over. He knows that the clock is winding down on him. And this explains, I think, why it's so important, why it's so important what he tells Timothy, because he knows that his life is coming to an end, and so Timothy now needs to take over this important task that he's been given. 
Because like an Old Testament drink offering that's been poured out in the altar, like we see in the Old Testament in Numbers, so too Paul's offering of his own life is nearly done. Look with me at verse 6. For I am being poured out, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Paul looks back on his life and he has no regrets, which is kind of funny given what his life was like, because life after his conversion was one of suffering and persecution and hardship. But at no stage does he lament the life that God has given him. Rather, in these reflections of a dying man, of a man facing his death, we see a quiet satisfaction with the life that he has lived. Uh, He has fought the good fight. He has struggled and endured and not given in, but continue to battle and proclaim and promote and defend God's word whenever and wherever he has been. He's finished the race. He hasn't given up. He hasn't cut corners. He hasn't thrown in the towel at the first convenient drink station when it gets a little bit hard. He's not like those guys who start off the city to surf and run the first 300 metres at full pelt and then fall over on the pavement just after the tunnel when he, after they've got off the TV cameras. Now, Paul is a guy who's run every single painful step to the very last centimetre of the race, and he has finished it. And he's also kept the faith. Despite torture and opposition and imprisonment and scepticism and challenge, he hasn't wavered in his hope and belief that Jesus is his Lord and Saviour. And so on his deathbed, he knows what's in store for him. He knows that on the final day of judgment, the only day that matters to Paul... Jesus, his Lord and judge, will declare him righteous. Righteous. Everything put behind him, righteous before God. And this isn't an arrogant presumption, but rather a quiet certainty that what his faithful God has promised him, his faithful God will also deliver. Paul knows it's not because of what he's done, but it's entirely because of what Jesus and his death and resurrection and his promise that all who trust in Jesus, that's what it's about. And this promise means that he will be made righteous. And this righteousness for him will be a crown, a gift, a reward, a treasure. You know, and the nice thing about uh, Paul's final words is it's not just about him. He also takes the time to remind Timothy, remind readers, remind us here in Chatswood today that this crown is actually for all of us, every single one of us who believe and trust in Jesus. Every person who trusts in Jesus, who fights the good fight, who finishes the race, who's kept the faith, this crown is in store for all of us. Look at verse 7 and 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. All right. So what do, what do we do with this passage? I mean, on one level, these are Paul's intimate words to his adopted son, Timothy. Personal advice, if you like. But as we read them today, they are more than that. They are part of God's word to us. And they're also Paul's final reflections from his deathbed on a life lived with no regrets. And so we can learn much from them. More than Bronnie Ware's patients who've looked back at their life in this world, Paul knows that this life is only a prelude to the eternity beyond. And so his words are far more impactful, far more powerful, far more influential. It's worth listening to. 
uh, his words are worth learning from. And his no regrets life, his no regrets life can be summarised in three quick phrases. Firstly, tell people about Jesus. Secondly, stay with the truth. Thirdly, keep with the faith. First, tell people about Jesus. You remember that Paul tells Timothy uh, to preach the word at all times, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, doing it all with uh, great care and great patience. This is the most important thing of anything, anything that Timothy can do. This is what it is, preach the word. Now granted, Timothy had certain gifts. He had been given a specific ministry uh, that Paul is urging him to keep on with that ministry as well. And some of us have that gift and this ministry as well. So uh, Warren, um, Jeff, Rebecca, uh, Marty, guys who are going to go forward, guys and girls are going to go forth and preach the word. This is what you need to do. You need to think about this. You need to think about what you're preaching. You need to do it carefully and patiently with great instruction. Keep persevering at that. It's a great message for ministers, this passage. But it's not just designated preachers and teachers, is it? We might not have a pulpit or a captive audience every week. But all of us who are Christian have opportunities every single day to tell people about Jesus. And all of us, all of us need to take these opportunities. I mean, you might not be a great speaker. Uh, you might not have huge, massive gifts of explaining the gospel in great detail. But you do have friends and colleagues who you talk with, who you're friends with, who, like, who you like spending time with, people who need to know the truth about Jesus, need to know what great offer of salvation that he offers the great promise of heaven that comes with following Jesus and being one of his people and so you should tell them you should tell them don't be hesitant don't be ashamed you have great news to share you're offering a message a salvation that these people would love to hear about and as I've thought about my opportunities this week I think the greatest thing that came out of it for me was realizing that I don't need to worry about the right time to tell uh, tell the truth, tell the people about Jesus, that all times are God times, all times are in season and out of season, and I need to think about just taking the opportunities as they come and taking them and telling people. Let me encourage you, don't regret that missed opportunity. Take the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so as you go out today, maybe it's worth thinking about, who am I going to tell this week the great news of Jesus Christ? Okay, Paul's second regret is that people let their itchy ears take them away from the truth. So to avoid this regret, we need to simply stay with the truth. Stay with the truth. Sometimes that truth is not what we want to hear, and I thought the kid's skit was brilliant in this regard. Sometimes it's just not what we want to hear. Sometimes God's word is hard and confronting and uncomfortable. It's not nice. It's not nice to be told that we're sinful and undeserving. It's not nice to be told that we need to change. It's not pleasant to be judged by God's perfect judgment. But let me tell you, it is far, far worse to chase sweet nothings that turn into turn to be nothing that a, a sugar-coated poison pill. Far, far worse. That words that lead us away from God and the truth and ultimately to a death without God. Don't regret chasing what you want to hear. God's word is what we need to hear, so you need to ignore those itchy ears and stick with the truth. Read God's word, know your Bible, stick with the truth. Finally, uh, God's word reminds us that we need to persevere. We need to keep going, even when it seems easier not to. When it seems like the Christian life is just too hard. When it seems that the alternative is just 
too attractive, when one more sin doesn't really matter, when it just seems that going with the crowd is just that much easier. These are times when Paul reminds us that we need to stick at the faith, keep fighting for the cause of the gospel, keep going one foot behind the other, finishing that race, being faithful to the faith that we've been given. Keeping at it. So Paul's words go much further than just uh, helping us work out whether we spend another weekend at the office, don't they? Uh, These are words that are last words that are eternally helpful, worth reflecting on. These are words that frame a life about life that is pleasing to God. And so as you look back on your life and also today look forward to your life that's still to come, I want to ask you this. Is there a risk that you'll have the regrets that Paul tells us about, that Paul warns us about, that you didn't take the opportunities to tell people the gospel that maybe you should have, that you've let your itchy ears carry you away from the truth, away from the powerful Christian life that comes to you free of charge by God who loves you, that you decided not to fight the good fight after all, that you decided to give up halfway and walk away from it because it just, you know, it just was inconvenient or just that little bit too hard. Are those regrets that you might have? Don't end up with those regrets. Paul tells us what these great Christian regrets are so that we can avoid them. So you can do something about them as you leave today. You can turn these around by addressing them, thinking about them, doing something about them, making them achievements and not regrets, achievements that we can celebrate with you on your deathbed. There is a crown waiting for you, a crown that is worth running for, a crown that is worth fighting for. So let me encourage you. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. That is a life of no regrets. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Paul and these words today. We thank you for these words of wisdom and the way they demonstrate what the life of no regrets looks like. Father, we pray for courage to proclaim your son and to do it in a way that pleases you. Help us to take those opportunities, particularly those opportunities that we're squirmish about, that we find difficult, that we just don't want to take. Father, I pray that you give us all courage to do that. Help us not to chase words that we want to hear, but Father, help us and remind us to stick with the truth we need to hear. Father, we ask that you would train us not to follow our itchy ears. And God, we pray that you would be with us all the way to the end. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to run the race to the very end. Help us to keep the faith. Father, we ask all this in eager anticipation of the crown of righteousness that you promise us and we look forward to receiving it because of what your son has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.